In episode five of the Sober Bros video podcast, <laughs> Daniel and I are going to be talking about what's been going on in our lives in the week since we've been sober. We're going to also talk about the impact that alcohol has had in relationships in our lives, strategies that we think help overcome the temptation to drink alcohol, and especially the importance of being in nature for health and recovery. All of this and more in episode five. So Daniel and I are in Sedona. It's a beautiful place to be on the Red Rocks here. How about this? What a change of location from the last episode. So happy to be here. We've been sober for a week. I've got Mountain Valley sparkling water. So here's the Brew Doctor kombucha, clear mind flavor. But hey, before we get going in this episode, I just want to remind you that this video podcast is streaming on Spotify and YouTube. It would mean a lot to us if you could show your support and go ahead and subscribe and hit the bell to get notified when new episodes are released every Sunday morning, every week. That would mean the world to us. Thank you so much. Daniel, what has been going on in the last week? Been a big week. It's been a really big week. Um, I managed to taper off. Uh, well, first thing I want to say is, again, you know, intervention or whatever, starting this podcast really, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know how I was going to do it. I just didn't really foresee. Yeah, just like all the comments and support we've been getting online really kind of gave me this fucking push. And this last week, yeah, it's been eight days. Today's day eight. Last Sunday morning, you know, I was like, this is, this is it. And I had all the uh, confidence and willpower and strength to do it, which is something I normally don't have. And I really feel like I was feeding off of um, the encouragement and support I was getting from you, from coworkers, from friends, and from the online community. Yeah, I personally thought it was fascinating, all the shorts that you've been sharing yeah. of your process. Um, it was funny for me because I saw the first one, you look like really haggard. The lighting's all dark. <sighs> and then... All right, trust? everybody, last night I was drinking. I know, it was really funny. <laughs> and then it's like, geez, I guess I'll post that. <laughs> Whatever, it's, it's raw and real. And then uh, over the course of the week, since as early as yesterday... Look a lot better though. You're doing it during the daytime. It's light. You're looking healthier. Yeah. Yeah. Just in this last week, I feel a hell of a lot healthier. Really on the self care protocols and getting my, like reclaiming my sovereignty and my health. And I've been doing so much reflecting on why it's taken me so long to address this issue because I've done so much work in other areas, but I never uh, put these same tools into practice with drinking. And I think subconsciously it's because I didn't want to stop drinking. That makes sense. A lot of other issues I was just able to like identify, boom, 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 like, uh, and now it's really time to do this. And so all this reflection. So last night, um, this was probably the most significant event of the week was uh, my band, the Black Forest Society, um, new album out couple weeks ago. It's really good. Spotify, Black Forest Society. So I went to go play a show with them at the Tantrum Wine Tasting Room in Old Town Cottonwood, which is where we commonly play. And I driving there, I felt like I had no problem. It wasn't going to be an issue. Probably a little bit overconfident. 
as it turns out. And I was like, I'm not going to be tempted. You know, it's not going to bother me. Uh, so I get out to the show and I set up and it's fine. It's fine. And then we start playing some music. And this is the first time I played sober in quite some time. And I got like a gallon of half a gallon of water with chlorophyll in it, which is not the same as wine. And typically, you know, I'd have a bottle of wine at least during the set and in between songs and just draining glass after glass of wine, getting comfortable getting into the music. And I didn't have that this time. And I can smell the wine, you know, and it's associated with like how I would feel during that set. And I found myself in between songs, super fidgety, uh, not very comfortable at all, you know, kind of like tight in my shoulders and my muscles and had my head down the entire time, not really interacting with anybody. People are like clapping. I'm like, who gives a fuck? Like, I don't even want to play this shit right now. Like, I just want to get the fuck home to my safe spot. And there was, it was really rough. And I was like, okay, cool. I have a lot more to take care of, a lot more to address here. And I was like, Show got done, you know, and uh, everybody, you know, if uh, if it hadn't been for my bandmates and people in the room who knew I had gotten sober, if it hadn't been for them, I probably would have caved and gotten a drink. So that accountability piece right there came into play again, and I'm really, really grateful for that. And so then I, I go home. Thank God the show's over. Just get home. Okay, cool. My truck is nearly out of gas, so I've got to stop for gas. <laughs> and... Pull into this gas station and I'm like, I could just have two beers, you know, just let's get two nine percenters, you know, the voodoo ranger. And once I hit that dirt road, you know, crack those and just chug them just to take the edge off, calm those nerves. When that addict, when that life with that alcoholic addict mindset comes in, all the practices that I have that I implement that are so successful, they just like that alcoholic monster just comes over and those uh, modalities are fucking silent sometimes. And so there I am at the gas station filling up my tank and I'm like, all right, I'm going to go in and get like two beers. That's it. My guitar player pulls into the gas station and he's got to get some gas too. <laughs> so I was like, well, there's no way I'm going to go into the gas station right now. <laughs> Well, you can just wait till he leaves. I thought about that, but I was like, I was like, no, okay, this is obviously maybe some kind of sign. So, cool, done. I'm pulling out of the parking lot, and at that junction right there, I could go home two ways. One's like bypasses the city, one goes through the town. Um, and I know that on the route through town, Susie Q's is right there. I could stop and get a couple more, and I know my guitar player, Bill, is not going to be there be anonymous. Nobody's going to see me. Nobody there has seen the podcast. So I pull out and I'm like, okay, if the light right here is green to go through the bypass route, I'll just go. If it's red, I'm going to go to the gas station. And it was green. So I went through, went down the bypass route. I was like, man, what a battle that was. That was a struggle. This is actually, yeah, this is, um, I, I can't play shows. I don't know for how long, maybe, you know, like a wine tasting room. I know I have one coming up at the Oak Creek Brewing Company in a couple of months, maybe month and a half. And hopefully I'll be month and a half is enough time to give you some strength to combat the resistance. Yeah, I agree. You know, and if it comes, if the day comes and I don't feel comfortable, I'll just, I'll bail on the show and I know that he'll be a week are still very, we are still very vulnerable. Well, yeah. some people, the pro sober people would who have 20, 50 years under their belt, they would say you're never 
free of that vulnerability. So absolutely, you and can't I'm be too overconfident. No, and I know this from times past. You know, when I'd be like two weeks sober, three weeks sober, and like I got this, and then a trigger happens. Yeah, and it could be anything. And all of a sudden, all of it goes out the window. And so I am going to be a lot more gentle on myself. So <laughs> so really this week, you've just been focusing on just one day at a time? Yeah, one day at a time. And, and going inside and taking it really easy on myself and l- allowing things to come up in my mental state and my meditations and my walks. And I think that's about it for me for this for this week what's up what's going on with you over this last week has been very different from the previous episode yeah the previous episode was recorded in late march in cottonwood at the old house and i was in a very rough spot then but things have changed pretty dramatically since then sobering up is a dramatic shift <clears throat> pretty pretty hard to do the first day, as we all know, all us addicts know. The first day is the hardest, and then the second day, you know, and but then after day three, it's really just, you start to feel so, I began to feel really clear, but still like really needing to sleep. <sighs> yeah, yeah. Sleep is really helping. How many hours of sleep did you get last night? Uh, I still need to do better about sleep. Like I just like I stay up late. Like you've watching. been up a lot later than normal. No, it's pretty normal for me to go to bed around eleven, twelve. Uh, what I do is typically uh, watch YouTube videos on productivity and like how to make better videos and marketing and things like this. Things I'm really passionate about, and I'll just kind of stay up late and geek out and watch on take notes. Um, I also work on the podcast pretty late. I'll be taking notes about you know this episode the next one and just sort of trying to stay ahead yeah when i'm drinking i can't really do that i'll just watch no. news or something maybe a movie kind of mindless but no just really trying to be productive but the, anyway the biggest thing that's happened for me over this last week is moving out of the house from cottonwood we're now living in sedona just down the street there uh so we got a new house it's um bigger cleaner quieter no dogs barking which is big for me i've got my own office which is going to be the sober bros recording studio uh maybe starting episode seven Uh, i gotta buy some things to sort of deck it out and spruce it up um but even bigger than just the move is uh tracy had the house in cottonwood that she inherited from her dad and she we sold it in record time really uh Listed it, sold it, more than the asking price. So now we've got a large sum of money, which which financial stress has been one of my biggest problems my whole adult life. Right. Or you might even say to pin it onto my upbringing my whole life. Yeah. So financial hardship has been really a centerpiece for me my whole life. And... Now that it's been like two days since we've gotten the check, like it's actually deposited in our account. It's really real. Um, We've already spent some of it on some things for the house. Uh, I'm paying off debt. I was like $6,000 in debt, which is not as much as some people, but 
large for me um, now to wipe debt away, pay off the phones, pay off the car, um, just really wipe the slate clean and still have enough for like years. Uh, it's, it's hard to adjust to that. Like, what's the analogy? Uh, it's something like you take an animal that's been in prisoned and abused for so long, and then you just let it out of the cage or whatever. Sometimes don't know what to do with your freedom. Yeah, exactly. Like, so net, cause I'm used to every day worrying about bills. Yeah. I can't pay my bills. I'm behind. Uh, now two days I, I, I don't have to worry about money and it's a little weird. I get it. Like, yeah, the same thing happened when I sold my house. I was like, wow. Yeah. So I'll adjust to that. By no means am I like thinking of retiring. I still want to no, put it to use. Keep keep looking for work, you know, because over the last three years I've been a freelancer doing photography, videography. I'm still going to look for work. Uh, I still have got a client that I get a monthly check from. So, Yeah, davidwhipple.com. You can see a lot of really prime examples of some of the work. Not just, you know, that, but shit. I mean, you just got hired by the woman who owns the land I live on to do a bunch of pictures for the uh, situation there just based on how she saw you handled and produce this podcast. Yeah. Just in case anyone's interested, uh, you know, I do work remotely for clients. I do photography, videography, I build websites, graphic design, copywriting, all kinds of stuff is a digital nomad. So check out davidwhipple.com if you're interested or know someone who is, who needs some work like that. So the last week for me, that's pretty much it. Just focusing on staying sober and being humble, um, and just kind of resting and resting. Yeah, just because, and not being too hard on myself because I mentioned productivity. I really want to be productive, and but um, you got to prioritize the time to be quiet. Yeah, um, and heal, let the body regenerate cellularly. Yeah, because I'll try and be productive, and then like I'm still not 100 percent clear in the mind because the toxins are still there yeah. and whatever. So I'm detoxing, and I'm not as sharp as I will be, and so. Right. When I'm trying to focus on work and I get distracted, I'll start to get a little frustrated and then I just stop and go outside and take a break and just be like, I'm going through a phase. It's like a gestation period, you know, like, a, is there ever like an, an in utero baby who's like, let me get the fuck out of here? No, you have to like let the time pass. You have to let the process happen and you can't rush it. And if you do rush it, um, you're going to miss a lot of the healing steps, you know? So yeah, again, but part of this last week, man, I've been sleeping sometimes 12 hours a night and, um, wake up and like, yeah, certainly there are things I could be doing. I'm also just going to prioritize just letting this body heal. I'm going to go for a long walk. You know, I'm going to sit and just reflect and just start to self-regenerate yeah. and not miss out on anything. Cause that's when people relapse, I think a lot of it is because they're not doing the work. They get overconfident. They don't finish the work. There's no follow through. And it's a lot easier. You know, let's get to the bottom of like, okay, why am I doing this? It could be a 12 step program. That's really great. You know, I've been going through, we'll talk about this in another episode, but I've been going through um, Russell Brand's book on recovery, you know, just like touching on some of these things and doing a lot of like self-reflection journaling and... Yeah, so there's something I want to talk about, and this is a 
great segue to it about relationships and how alcohol has impacted them because you're talking about doing the work and just going, why are these patterns repeating, you know, kind of reflecting, doing the inner work. But a lot of people, as we know, don't do the inner work. So when they engage in relationships, right, uh, a lot of that stuff comes up and out and projected onto the other person and it ends up being in drama and negativity and conflict and friction. Yep. So I'm curious if we could both just kind of riff on um, how drinking alcohol has affected our relationships throughout our adult lives. Yeah, go. Uh, well, f- I'll just start with most recent, Tracy. Um, we've always been good. Yeah, you guys have been always a really cool couple. So we, we don't really argue. Uh, <laughs> not at all compared to my other relationships. So how has alcohol reflected my relationship with Tracy? Nothing toxic, but I'm sure, I mean, nothing good ever has come of alcohol and my life and relationships. Well, there's been some good fireside chats, you know, some good comedy. Yeah. Uh, Well, can I mention something that maybe from like an outside perspective concerning you and Tracy? Sure. That is a parallel for me is when you're in the throes of alcoholism, the daily pattern, that's one of the primary things on the mind. True. You know, no, I like in my head, maybe in your head, like, no, I don't like want to engage like that right now. I just want to. That's so true. And I'm glad you said it. I mean, one real example in our relationship is like when I'm really drinking, yes, I wake up hungover. And so I'm thinking, oh, shit. And then once it once it gets about two to five p.m., I'm starting to think, okay, drinking is going to be good. Um, And Tracy does sort of fall to the secondary position on that because. You know, I, I do want to be like, okay, you have drinking and then we're just going to be chilling. We're hanging out. Um, oftentimes she wants to be sexual and that's great. But um, sexuality and alcoholism doesn't really, it's like oil and water for me. Like um, if I'm drinking, well, it, there's a blood issue, with, especially with men and erections. So there's that Wh- whiskey dick, they say, right? So uh, if, if I know I'm drinking one night, definitely no sex. And then in the morning, it's questionable yeah, so going back to previous relationships, um, just uh, there was more drama. I don't, I'm not sure how directly alcohol was affecting those. It must have been in a big way. I'm not maybe that great at self-reflection, but I, maybe you have something to say about my relationships. Most of your other relationships before this one weren't all that serious. Yeah. There was what, what was her name, Zena? Zia. Zia. That was a big one, but you weren't really drinking that heavily at that time. Yeah. But most of the other ones before that, the relationships weren't that um, serious and they were largely focused on um, alcohol and at least you were. Yeah. And sex. Yeah. And that was 20s and 30s. So it was kind of par for course for most people is just sex and drinking and having fun. Yeah, so it kind of prevented you from having any kind of serious relationship, which maybe you weren't ready for anyway. I don't think you were. Yeah. So, I don't know. What about you, though? Well, I've only had serious relationships. And every single one of them, in hindsight, were directly impacted by alcohol abuse. I would say that... 
what alcohol did was just make me not present. And, you know, early 20s, I wasn't prepared. You know, I was just like a younger 20-year-old guy. And in this society, um, God forbid, like, what women are up against, you know, who are of that age, like the caliber of dudes who are in their 20s. Fuck, I don't envy them at all. Um, They're all just boys. And the shot of them ever becoming a man is pretty slim, in my opinion. I, I agree. Yeah. But um, I could go back to Anna when I was in Indiana and Chicago. Definitely prioritizing alcohol. And that really made me not be able to show up in our relationship. Because I was like, my mind was always like, let's go drink. You know, I'm going to, I'm in a band, you know. So let's, one of the main excuses for having band practices was so we could go, I could go out and drink. You know, and then I come home and I'm fucking sloppy and... With uh, Sophie's mom, yeah, some triggers happened early on, and I was sober for a while, and things started to get rough. Stepkids were involved, and she had a rough pregnancy, and I turned to alcohol, and I was productive. I wrote an, an album of my own and filled you know, a journal full of stuff and started writing a book for Sophie, but turning to that just made me so much more negative and so much less patient. And again, my ability to show up and be clear and be strong was just really greatly diminished. And I started hiding, you know, especially towards the end, you know, year, year three, when uh, I would just find excuses to stay at work late, you know, and leave her with the kids. You know, I would work until nine. Her older kids were in bed and I would stay after work for another few hours just drinking because I didn't want to go home. I didn't, I, 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 you know, I couldn't be clear and show up presently for her. And then I would just, you know, I was a shoemaker at the time. In addition to working at the chocolate tree, I was making boots and sandals out of bison leather. And uh, I would go into my workshop in the garage. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I got to make these shoes. It's going to be a late one. Yeah. You know, and there's wine and there's beer and. And then not just like intimate relationships, but other relationships, just like friends. You know, I took to uh, finding excuses to just bail from social engagements and not wanting to go and hang out with good friends. Yeah, I didn't mean just like intimate relationships, but also friends, any kind of relationship. Yeah, yeah. you know, because at that time, my fucking greatest lover was alcohol. So I prioritize where attention goes, energy flows, you know, and I would uh, find all the excuses in the world. And I became good at coming up with legitimate excuses. I've got work to do. You know, I've got boots to make, I've got shoes to make, you know, I've got to, got to be at work late. So they were fairly legitimate, but I capitalized on them in a really negative way. When you're like fucking hungover or you're drunk, man, I've had conversations where I didn't remember them next day. You know, like you're going to have to remind me about what we even fought about yesterday or last night because I don't remember, you know, and that wasn't necessarily me. And then it comes like a lot of guilt and shame with that, which makes me recede even further. 
which makes me turn to the bottle even more, you know, because that guilt and shame isn't going to go away until into the second bottle of wine. Mm -hmm. And then the only person I'm admitting it to is my journal and myself, you know. Because that process isn't something you want to be transparent with them or others about. Fuck no. No, especially not when you're getting judged, you know, and I will say this, and this isn't an excuse, but I remember with Sophie's mom, um, I was living in the garage at the time because we were kind of like together, but having separate spaces and I wasn't ever lying. It was lying by omission. So I wasn't telling her that I was in there every night drinking late working. I was working, but I didn't tell her that I was drinking. I also didn't lie and say that I wasn't drinking. She never asked. And then one day she went into the garage to look for something and I had this like little trash can. And I mean, it was comical. It was exploding with bottles of wine. (laughs) And um, I had been going through like a really radical spiritual transformation at the same time. I do believe that they can happen simultaneously for some people. Um, In fact, sometimes alcohol can be helpful. I talked about that before. And she sent me a picture of the exploding trash can full of bottles of wine. And she said something like, oh, "This is this your um, healing modality or something? And it was caustic. You know, it was, it was like I received it as very vicious and antagonistic. And I got home and I let it all out. Man, I was like on my knees crying and telling her that I was sorry, you know. But I was also saying like, I was like, I didn't hide this from you. I left the trash can out there. You could have seen this at any time. And maybe subconsciously, this was a cry for help, you know, because I do know that I need help. And for you to respond in a way that's like attacking me for this really hurts because you're my partner. You're my daughter's mom. And we're supposed to be in a relationship that's like helpful to each other. And I, I also invite you to show up in a way that's like, how can I help? It's extremely difficult to understand the mind of an addict and what happens up here. Because for most people that don't have these kind of addictions, they're like, just stop. Let's well, not that, you know, it's, it is kind of a mental illness. And I don't want to be doing this. I don't want to be showing up like this. And like the last thing I need right now is somebody who's giving me more grief and judgment and drinking because I feel judged. <laughs> Now, to add insult to injury, you know, I'm getting criticized and judged again. And I totally understand. And this is my fucking problem. Uh, So that's definitely how it's impacted my relationship with other. And I'm sure that we could go on and on and on about this. There's probably countless examples. I mean, just my daughter. It's not like I've abused my daughter or neglected my daughter, for sure. You know, even if I am drinking and I'm with her. You know, I could still be reading books to her, um, facilitating experiences in the evening. I'm not just like sitting her in front of a goddamn movie. You know, I'm still very much present and, and with her. But, you know, here she sees the sky. And I, I guarantee you, you know, like the smell of alcohol. I might brush my teeth, wash my beard before I go to bed, you know, but at night, like it's coming out. And so subconsciously it's in it's these are being kind of programmed. These smells 
you know, and, and yeah, I remember when I was young and sometimes being close to dad and right. I'd be like resting on his side or something and his yeah. hand would be close. I could smell the tobacco on his, I remember right. the smell. Oh, for sure. So kids are recognizing smells. Absolutely. And they get, what imprinted. does that mean for them? I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't really know, but they're, they're getting in there and it becomes like a familiar smell. Yeah. It becomes a familiar smell. So maybe she'll grow up and like smell that alcohol on someone else and have an association. Not necessarily be bothered by it, you mm-hmm. know, and maybe subconsciously it's like could be an attractive thing. Yeah. Um, whereas like you go, you're not going to do this. I'm not going to do this, but go meet another lady, you know, and you like reek of alcohol. Like I always like to compare it to, you know, you smell like a fucking dumpster behind the AMPM. Uh, that's pretty repulsive. Yeah. But if I smell like that going to bed and my daughter, you know, she's too young to be like, you're disgusting. Get away from me. <laughs> yeah. So I'm really fucking looking forward to, you know, and she sees me throughout the course of the evening, you know, begin to slur my speech a little bit. So she's watching this and this is normal for her to see. I'm so fucking happy. You know, she's only six years old and, you know, some of that damage has already been done. I've been journaling about it. I'm going to be extremely transparent with her and bring these things up with her and be there for her for these things. Um, but I'm really happy now that for now it's over, giving myself grace. Who knows if it's going to, you know, happen again. I hope, hopefully not. I'm going to try to stay as strong as possible and do the work. Yeah. Speaking of that, uh, it sounds like there will be temptations and that's another subject I wanted to wrap with you about is, Are there any strategies that we have learned over the last week or years? uh, Because temptation is going to come up tonight, tomorrow, anytime. It could strike at any time. Do you have any like tips for uh, what to do in those times of temptation to stay on the path? This is new for me because in times past, if a trigger came along, I would just go with it. I wouldn't resist. I, I fucking wouldn't. I didn't even try. Resistance is pita. Fuck. I would just, okay, fuck. That shit just happened to me? This calls for a six pack. Yeah, so this time around, you know, I do have a lot of tools. And I've had those tools in, in times past, but I didn't implement them in regards to alcohol. Again, because I think subconsciously I didn't want to stop drinking. Um, I think real right now I very much do want to just stop. I hope you would agree with me, but my vision for us right now is like, it's a, a chapter that's done. That chapter is closed. We have to go the rest of our lives. Like, I think it's all or nothing. I hate to sound like an extremist. Oh, for sure. It's all for nothing. I can't be trusted. And so, our lives will be better for it. What are we losing out on? No, our lives will be better for it. My daughter's life will be better for it. I think the world's going to be better for it. Yeah. There's also um, aspects of neuro-linguistic programming. NLP. NLP. Cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, basically rewiring the brain. And this could be through law of attraction type of things. You know, I've, I've had experience in the past doing this to get myself out of certain mindsets and situations. I've been having this mantra in my head, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sober 
or I am safe because that was the thing after the gas station last night, I got home and on the drive home and then at home, I was meditating on, okay, go back to how you were feeling at the wine tasting room, fidgety, agitated, keeping your head down. I didn't feel safe. And I'm not going to bother getting to the root of like why I don't feel safe. I already know the roots of that. It has to go, it goes back to infancy because we were in a very unsafe environment up in Alaska where I was born. Anyway, I didn't feel safe at the wine tasting room. I didn't feel safe in my own skin. I didn't feel comfortable being me in that context, not hiding behind uh, alcohol and how alcohol makes me feel. Calm and collected, fucking groovy, you know, with it. So I didn't feel safe. So another one of those mantras that I just have going in my head, in my free mental time, whenever I can, is I'm safe. I am safe. I am safe. I am safe. I am safe. And I just drilling that in to create new neural pathways. So a mantra of some kind. A mantra of some kind that I do almost all the time. Because when it, when, when it comes to the situation where you're facing that trigger, you're facing that temptation... Probably the mantra is not going to get in there because I'm already, I'm already there. I've already hit the point where it's an emergency situation. So if I can prepare myself, much like if I'm going to go rock climbing, I don't just go untrained into rock climbing. You have to prepare for it. Mm. By the time you get to the rock face, I've got the muscles to do it. So in my, this is like a training program. I, I spoke with Tara today. I was telling you that who's been in recovery for three years or so now from alcohol. Anyways, I was describing her the situation from last night and getting to the bottom of like, okay, I feel unsafe. She's like, wow, holy shit. Like, that's so good. That never occurred to me because I always just identified it as anxiety. And I always drank because I had high anxiety, either alone or in social situations. But now that you mentioned that, I had anxiety because I didn't feel safe. Yeah, if I look at it like layers vertically, like anxiety is here, unsafe is here. If you want to get to like the root of why, so unsafe is down here closer to the truth. Uh, anxiety is more of a symptom of an underlying uh, truth. Right. And so I described, you know, as a, as a newborn child being born, being had the pregnancy and then being born in a very unsafe environment, having that imprint of not feeling safe. And that's my gold. That's like my material to work with to transmute. This is what alchemy is, is taking things like that and turning it into gold, that lead, that darkness, and turning it into gold. But we just we have to acquire the tools to be able to do that. Speaking of tools, that actually leads me to the final point. And, and the most important one for me personally right now is... Uh, a, a tool for maintaining uh, the vision, walking on the path to that vision is the importance of being in nature for a holistically healthy lifestyle. I mean, can you just speak to that for, I mean, an, to an addict, to yeah. an alcoholic specifically, someone who's been traumatized, somebody who's in pain and suffering and confusion, um, what place does wildness have in your matrix reality well it's a, a pretty complex issue there i remember when i went to go live on the farm uh, growing up in portland of course and then hitchhiking sedona went back up to seattle to do a job and realizing i had a wolf dog at the time and 
I couldn't keep her in an urban environment. And so I was like, I got to find a place with more space. Long story short, wound up living on a farm in remote Oregon, two miles from the nearest blinking yellow traffic light. You lived with there uh, with me there for a few months. And it was um, an entire year spent largely off grid, disconnected from the technocratic world and coffee shops and Wi-Fi and like all this shit. And I was out there in nature being programmed with my eyes, right? They, on in television and movies and radio and all this media, they call it programming because it's programming us. What we take in with our eyes and with our electromagnetic field is literally programming our consciousness and um, can help to uh, shift and develop our character. <clears throat> so spending that whole year on the farm uh, fundamentally changed my whole mindset. Did so much deprogramming of all of the stuff that made up who I was up until that point. So I think immersing ourselves more in environments like this, like camping makes us want to drink. So it's weird. I don't know. But I'm thinking of like the people that live in big cities and are commuting and billboards and advertisings and uh, tailgaters and cutting off and yelling and sirens and then conflicts at home. Every all day, every day is the norm for millions of people. Yeah, constantly elevated levels of cortisol. Yeah, disrupting hormones and endocrine system, and no, no surprise about addictions there. Right. But getting literally grounded, you know, we got into this before leaving Portland. We found that book Earthing by Clint Ober, and it talks about the scientific proofs of just getting connected to the surface of the earth has chemical hormonal electromagnetic shifts in the body that sync us up with the surface energy of the earth. And, uh, it's the most rich source of antioxidants in the world because we're like receiving the negatively charged, uh, electrons from the ground that bind to the positively charged electrons in our body, which are those free radicals bind to those and dump it into the earth. And so we're, it's like this cleansing process. It's, um, cleansing from uh, free radicals. It's cleansing us um, by getting us hooked up to the circadian rhythms of the earth. So like we don't even notice a lot of these things because they're mental, they're uh, um, emotional and they have really long term effects. It's an extremely healthy process and it's calming. It's like anti-anxiety. You know, you go and lay in the beach, go and lay on the sand in the beach. Fuck, man, you fall asleep in like five minutes. After a short amount of time, and especially after an extended period of time, we're going to notice some fundamental shifts in the way that we think about things, the way we observe things, and how we interact with the world. It's not necessarily going to cure addiction right away, but it's, I think it's a really uh, an amazing component to recovery. Yeah, the key role of exposure to nature, especially extended exposure to nature. I, I can't really say enough about it. Right on. Well, I love it. Um, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it's been a great first week sober. Yeah. Good job to you. Well done. And I want to thank you for watching 
hoping that your relationships are healthy, that you are feeling clear, clean, and sober, and staying on the path with us, because I really think that it's not just a journey for me and Daniel, but according to many of the messages and comments we're hearing from you and other viewers online, um, there's other people joining us in this journey as well. I really feel like it. we're all in it together. Yeah, yeah, the Sober Squad is growing. Yes, it is. Um, so if you like this video and the content that we're sharing, please feel free to share it with a friend that you think might enjoy it as well. We do have the Sober Squad newsletter that goes out every Sunday along with every new episode on Sunday mornings. You can find that through the links in the description, the Sober Squad newsletter. Uh, all that and more at thesoberbros.com.